You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. First, the colours, then the humans. That's usually how I see things, or at least how I try. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. I am, in all truthfulness, attempting to be cheerful about this whole topic, though most people find themselves hindered in believing me, no matter my protestations. Please, trust me, I most definitely can be cheerful. I can be amiable, agreeable, affable, and that's only the A's. Just don't ask me to be nice. Nice has nothing to do with me. Reaction to the aforementioned fact. Does this worry you? I urge you, don't be afraid. I'm nothing if not fair. Of course, an introduction, a beginning. Where are my manners? I could introduce myself properly, but it's not really necessary. You will know me well enough, and soon enough, depending on a diverse range of variables. It suffices to say that at some point in time, I will be standing over you as genially as possible. Your soul will be in my arms. A colour will be perched on my shoulder. I will carry you gently away. That was, of course, The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. And that's the book. What's the breakfast? Well, the extract you just beautifully read uh, was from the first chapter of The Book Thief, which is called Death and Chocolate. So I thought, in honour of that, we should have... Our breakfasts thus far have been quite British. We had the, the, the scrambled tofu, once that had a kind of Mexican hint. But um, we, we've generally had, like, you know, toast and fry-ups and things. Bucket loads Arms. of Marmite. Yeah. Uh, but today we're having pan au chocolat mm. because I wanted to eat something chocolatey but also not overly British. However, when I suggested pan au chocolat, I forgot one crucial factor. Which was that? that you don't like it. Yes. <laughs> but I'm having it anyway because it's death and chocolate. Well, I, I'm still having death and mm. chocolate or pan au chocolat and chocolate. <laughs> well, I'm having the pan... So I'm having the sort of bready croissant bit baked, and I'm also having some chocolate with it. But I can't abide melted chocolate. From a sensory point of view, it just weirds me out, which is odd because I like hot chocolate, the drink. So I'm having a bready thing with chocolate, and you're having a bready thing and chocolate. <laughs> yes. Were you one of those kids that had to have all their food items completely separate on the plate? I still pretty much am. Yeah. Well, I was, actually. And I'd eat honest. them all in a certain order as well. <laughs> There's a hierarchy. Mm. I'd always finish with the best thing, whereas I always thought that made me um, perhaps more discerning than other children who would start with the best thing mm. and finish with the thing they least wanted to eat. To me, it was a sort of ascension to greatness. That's very you. Because <laughs> you, we both read this book near when it first came out. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but we both intended to reread it ahead of recording this episode mm. which i did in my usual fashion of just inhaling a book um but you're only halfway through which is not just you being a slow reader it's because i think you treat the ending of a good book like you treated those favorite items of food yeah. like they weren't to be rushed they were to be savored and and I know you, I knew you mentioned it earlier, but we've talked about it before in the podcast, especially you, like we talked about time, travel, time traveler's wife, where you didn't want to let go and you're no. so invested in it. And so, yeah, you've been rereading, but you've been savoring it. It's uh, most things I do, 
um, are painstaking and I really become invested in any good book. Um, and it's the same if I'm writing myself or making music myself. It's a really slow, immersive experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm all about savouring the journey. So whereas most of these that we've done, uh, we've talked about some for memory, sometimes we've revisited the book, sometimes we've listened to audiobook versions of them. This one puts, from my point of view, an interesting spin on things because I'm rereading mm. the book. I read it when it first came out in about 2010, and I've reread pretty much exactly half of it mm. looking at this uh, bookmark perched tantalizingly in here. So I'm in the midst of it, I'm in the eye of the storm, and I will continue rereading the book after we've done the podcast. I'm afraid we're going to spoil the end, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but what you were just saying about it being about the journey. It reminds me of several of the observations about storytelling and the nature of storytelling in this book. Mm. Um, and there's a beautiful quote from probably about three quarters of the way through. Um, talking about story. Mystery bores me. It chores me. I know what happens next and so do you. It's the machinations that wheel us, that aggravate, perplex, interest and astound me. There are many things to think of. There is such story. And it's that idea that sometimes a tale is all about the telling. Mm. And it made me think of Romeo and Juliet, how, you know, widely regarded as one of the greatest stories ever told. And, and not just because of the plot, but because of the dialogue and mm. the beauty in it. And the, uh, the, the speech at the start tells us exactly what's going to happen. It's full of spoilers. <laughs> but sometimes story is more than twists and... So if you've never read The Book Thief, what are you playing at? Um, <laughs> but it's a book that's set in Germany during the Second World War. So even from the beginning, we have a pretty good idea of how it's going to end and what is almost certain to happen mm. to some, if not all, of the characters. And there's a degree of fatalism about it. And you could, you could say, well, what's the point in reading it? And it's not, you know... Again, it's not about how it ends. It's about how those people live mm. before the end. I um, I bought this copy that I've been uh, rereading and um, curling the corners of the pages, <laughs> actually for my partner when we first met. Oh, wow. Because I said, it's about death. You'll love this. <laughs> um, and little did I know at that point that uh, actually... Whereas uh, we might be obsessed with death mm, in a kind mm. of uh, existential way. Yeah. She was obsessed with death in a kind of fear of death way. And in many ways, this was the worst present to buy her. A panic attack inducing book. Yes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Here and is I'm... a small fact. You are going to die. Yes. <laughs> People don't want to know that. They don't want to think about that. So um, she, she didn't read it. Oh, no, um, she didn't get past that first page. Which is funny because the amount of people that I've sort of pinned down, sort of metaphorically or otherwise, and said, say. listen to this, and read them that <laughs> chapter, that, that segment, and they've rushed out and bought mm. it, or just run away from me. But um, I can see why it, it's ominous. And you know that not everyone is going to make it out of this book alive. Yeah. I don't think that's a spoiler to say that. I can see why it wouldn't be to my partner's tastes or, or everyone's tastes. I think you've got to be... Mm made of uh, a, cer a certain type of curiosity to want to kind of indulge in, yeah. in that world and draw yourself into that world. And yeah, I think it gives you a, a sort of profound sense of empathy and understanding for what 
the people went through because we so often think of history mm, mm. and especially things like the second world war as a series of statistics and in terms of binaries like good and bad mm, mm. but there's such nuance to this book and at the end of the day it's about everyday people living everyday it's life humans, in very yeah. difficult situations and i suppose a, a thing to point out if you didn't guess this from the introduction um if you haven't read the book it's narrated by death mm. and it's so interesting that when you say that this is a book about human beings and all their sort of flawed complexity and their capability for acts of extreme horror and almost divine beauty and sometimes simultaneously sometimes mm. within the same person and you think to really tell a story like that what better narrator to have than somebody who isn't human mm. you know there's right from the um, the off when, uh, you know, in terms of what you're saying about Romeo and Juliet, mm. death essentially drops little spoilers about what's going to happen. Yes, so you kind of yeah. know what's going to happen. And one of them is the death of the pilot. Um, oh, yeah. When he seeded so much earlier on. Yeah. Of that moment. But also the kind of human innocence mm. when they put the teddy bear by him. Uh, and my God, it, it's yeah. just absolutely unbearable. I, it had me just, welling up. Oh, yeah. It destroys mm. you, doesn't it? Um, and again, I won't get into spoiler territory just yet. I mean, it's, this is a fairly well-known book and it's mm. been out for a long time, but just in case there is one of the main characters who dies, there's a section where just almost halfway through the book, it just drops out of nowhere. There's an aside about that character and then the observation that they didn't deserve to die the mm. way they did. And it just slaps you in the face and says, oh yeah, they're going to die. Yeah. You know? And then it says, I'm jumping two years ahead. So you yeah. know exactly when it's going to happen. Yeah. And again, it's that idea of like, it's not, this story is not about twists and turns and revelations and mystery. It's just about living. But anyway, before we get onto that, um, how did you discover The Book Thief? I think we both discovered it mm. the same way. Um, certainly I've been aware of it. And I remember seeing it on bookshelves uh, and thinking it looked interesting. And we've both got different copies of the book. And um... Oh, no, I've got the same copy as you. The, oh. the, the one I've got with me today I bought from Oxfam just so I could um, oh. annotate it. Okay. I couldn't bear mm. to touch because the, the cover of your one is so beautiful. Yeah. I've got okay. the same image of mine of young oh, uh, yes. Liesl dancing with death. Literally, mm. I mean, it's literally death and the maiden, isn't it? Mm. Uh, except mine is just on a black background. It's got a sort of glittery sort of starlit backdrop but it's nowhere near as gorgeous as the sort of the weathered tome effect and the <laughs> and the sort of calligraphied book title of yours the one i have safely on the shelf at home and it hasn't been scrawled oh. over in biro <laughs> i've got two identical copies with this cover hmm. um but uh, i don't care for the sticker on that one <laughs> <laughs> now a major film what film I haven't seen it doesn't exist i think the film is okay but we'll talk we'll more come about back, that we'll come later back um but yeah, there was something appealing about this cover that kind of drew me in. It drew me off the shelf. Um, and yet, I suspect um, we probably would have found this book one way or the other anyway. I think it would have found oh, its way to us. Yeah. But it was actually my ex-partner um, who I think uh, read this first and um, told us, you know, you've got to read this book, mm, as yeah. so often happens. Um, and I guess um, for me... It coincided with the time of my life where I was starting to travel abroad and I was going to Germany a yeah. lot. Um, and there's um, there's something about kind of uh, exploring that different cultural narrative as well. Um, and I've always been fascinated by modern Germany. I, mm. I love Germany as a country. 
And I would generally say that uh, I love most German people I meet. And I think there is a sort of um, a compassion uh, amongst the, the German nation today mm-hmm. because of what happened and a sense of, uh, you know, something like that must never happen again. And so it's a country that I find very humanitarian and inclusive and polite and forward-thinking in terms of a lot of humanitarian issues. Whenever so, I've been to Germany, the, the people are just so friendly mm. and welcoming. And um, like, I remember the first time I went to Berlin with you. Yeah. Um, and I was so... It, it, the atmosphere of that city mm. is incredible. Mm. I kept saying, I feel like I'm at a festival. <laughs> and like the way it's a very kind of... Bohemian isn't the right word. That sounds kind of you know uh in a sincere way there's there's a real sense of artistry and there's music and there's mm. vibrancy and and a real kind of sense of left leaning yeah. politics and and there's just a, you know creatively there's a lot going on and there that yeah and it's almost it, comparing that berlin to the berlin depicted in this book well, it's Munich could, in this book isn't it well i i meant yeah. I, it's not set in berlin i just meant in terms of what is happening in Germany at uh, that time yeah, with Hitler yeah. being a, but you know, you, you, and you think like how it's the complete opposite, mm. and it's interesting that you say culturally the backlash to that kind of that that well fascism, you know, was compassion. Yeah, and how often has that happened in history? I mean, we see so many uh, regimes where one regime yeah. dies and just seems to begat another one, and I think that's what's so fascinating about modern Germany. So to see. Uh, a sort of perspective on the events that triggered that cultural change mm. that's made Germany the progressive place it is now made this a book that was very dear to my heart. Um, and I guess also, I hope that this is still kind of taught to younger generations, but certainly to our generation, World War Two is a big part of our upbringing and education. Well, massive. And it's a huge yeah. moral lesson to yeah. us. So I guess it's a book that is implicit with fascination to people of our age group and hopefully will continue to be for future age groups. So I'm very thankful to my ex-partner, who I'm still good friends with, for introducing me to this book. She introduced introduced us to quite a few good books, as, yeah. as I recall. She yeah. definitely um, gave me a copy of The Kite Runner and oh, many nice. other brilliant books oh, came out around that time. But yeah, she also, I, I think, I don't know if we read it at the same time. I feel like she lent me a copy or maybe I just bought one because you were both reading it i don't know but i distinctly remember it was a long time ago now probably was about 2000 yeah, it was 2010 mm. and we were all staying in edinburgh in a in a peculiar little hostel yeah. is it cowgate i don't remember the name of the street no. but i can picture the hostel exactly it was really weird sort of ramshackle sort of rooms that shouldn't <laughs> fit where they did and there was like yes. a sort of common room bit with like a pool table and a downstairs or backyard and a little kitchenette and for whatever reason i had this book with me and well, I tend to get up much earlier than you do. I just, I just wake up early. <laughs> I don't intend to. An understatement. That gap uh, only seems to widen yeah. as we get older. <laughs> but I, um, it's a miracle we managed to do this podcast at all. <laughs> we could only do it at approximately 6pm <laughs> when I'm just waking up and you're and just an uh, hour not before quite I start to falling asleep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll be having the big snooze after this <laughs> and I'll be going out to run a marathon around the lake. <laughs> um, and I was up really early and I love Edinburgh. And I just came down and the, the place was just completely silent. And I just went to that little kitchenette and made myself a brew. 
and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll start on this book. And it was just, I was just looking out at the window over the, you know, that beautiful Edinburgh skyline yeah. of the old town with all, you know, those gorgeous, like the castle and spires and, uh, and the sort of very, the, the pale light of dawn oh. and being alone and being silent and then picking up that book. And here is a small fact you are going to die and that is a moment and it, yeah. it stuck with me you know not just the book but that moment and and i suppose in terms of what you were talking about earlier i was one of those people that said oh my god yes <laughs> tell me more i guess um to draw on another of my great loves um i'm thinking of the orbital track there will come a time oh with, uh, wow. Brian yeah, Cox, yeah which yeah. is all about how we must embrace death mm. in order to live in the now and how we must embrace the kind of greater death of the universe yeah. because of the uh, the greater kind of part mm. and things that will become of that. Um, and there are certain kinds of people that would hear this track and would hear the first line, which is almost the same as the book Thief. I've heard people say that there will come a time is depressing and bleak. Yeah, you know. yeah. There's people I I put it onto and they're like to turn this off. I yeah, don't want to listen like, to this. You know, but one day us, the it, sun beautiful. will die. Yeah. But to me, that all that means is, but it's but it's here today. Yeah. It's so a savor. It's burning it's now. Yeah. So just live. Life is precious and fleeting. Yeah, and that's the in a world where death is a certainty. Why would anybody choose war? And I guess that's one of the questions at the yeah. heart of this book. But um, and then I read the book over that summer, and funnily enough, I finished it in Germany. I was in oh. Cologne. Um, was that when you? We were all there together. You were there at the start, yes. yeah. But but you, because yeah. you went home earlier, because the rest of us went to a festival. <laughs> I fed up of you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to see you again. Twelve years later, um, and just coincidentally, I was I was nearing the end of the book, and we were we were flying home, uh, from Cologne to Manchester, and you know, well, no, you don't really fly, do you? But um. You have to, you know, go and check in it. and wait just forever. It seems like forever in the in the departure lounge where, you, where you're waiting to board. And it was, we, you know, the cheapest flight. So it was, I mean, it was six o'clock in the morning. I was being silly, and we'd been there since five, and and everyone was sort of half asleep in the departure lounge. And it was a weird sort of mirror image to when I started the book in Edinburgh, and oh. everyone around me was kind of asleep or half asleep or lying on their bags. And I read that end passage. We won't get into spoiler territory just yet, just in case anyone listening hasn't read the book or is only halfway through, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that I, you know, well, it's a book narrated by death, so it's about death. Mm. And at the end... N- not everyone's going to make it out not, alive. Well, no one's going to make it out of alive, out alive, because we all die. Well, You know what I mean? Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's... The scene I'm describing is basically depicted on the cover of every <laughs> version of this book I've seen. <laughs> but um, that idea of dying and leaving with death, but the idea of it, it's not exactly the end. It's just the end of this story. And there's something liminal about airport departure lounges yeah. in the same way that there's something liminal about train stations. You feel like you stood in one place in one town or one country and within a matter of hours you can suddenly magically be somewhere else yes and they feel incredible. like they, they don't quite exist in real time or real space no they're like embassies in exactly country. yeah like you're, you're on somebody else's land and time and everything feels a little bit sort of fleeting and transient around you so there was something really quite not profound but sort of existential sense of wonder mm. about being in this non-place in this non-time with all these half-asleep friends and strangers and reading this book 
about death and the, the journey that we all inevitably eventually take. Yeah. It was quite, you know, so <laughs> both of those moments, beginning and finishing the book, have really, really stuck with me. And I must, I'm jealous because when when we started doing this podcast and for whatever reason, I read the opening section on the first book and mm. I said, I'll do this one, you do the next one and then we'll alternate. <laughs> and I sort of, I looked at the list and thought, oh, I get all the best ones. I get I get Doctor <laughs> Who and I get Hitchhiker's Guide. I was completely right. You, you get to read all the best bits. <laughs> you got to read that gorgeous it's section from The Time plans. Traveler's Wife. You got 1984 and now you've had that. But, I, but it, I'm it, looking it, forward to the uh, August one as well. Oh yeah. yeah, well they're not allowed to know what that is yet. Oh no, no, no. It was very, it's, very important. We're not, for we're not that... doing a death and spoiling it. <laughs> um, it was very important for me to that you got to read the August yeah, one. Thank you. Um, uh, the December one, which we may have recorded already, <laughs> uh, we couldn't, we couldn't fight over that one. So we, we've read it together. Shared. I yeah. mean, you should share at Christmas. So, yeah. yeah, but only at Christmas. <laughs> um, but I think you know. Pretty much every book we discuss on this podcast, I will say, oh, best book ever written, my favorite book of all time, because they're all contenders in their own way. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be discussing them. These, This is just for talking about stuff that we mm. love. Um, but that introduction, I, I struggle to think of a better opening to a book. Even books that I objectively prefer, I don't necessarily think they're better, but books that I love a little bit more than this, like mm. something like Lord of the Rings or whatever. And that's got a great intro too, but all the books on this podcast have great intros. But that, what an opening. Not just not just the sort of slap you in the face sentiment, the beauty of it. And uh, and, and there's there's warmth in there. There's it, it, It's sort of, it has comedy, you know. And, yeah, uh, but, it and, does. And that's just the, the words beginning with A, you know. I mean, in some respects, um, it's interesting because... Uh, I read The Hogfather by Terry Pratchett recently, <laughs> yeah, I was which we, we may talk about on this podcast at I some point. So. But there is an interesting comparison. It could feasibly be mm. the same version of death in both The Hogfather, which essentially is a sort of silly comedy fantasy with little stealthily profound moments yeah. smuggled in, and the death in The Book Thief, which is a kind of um, a tragedy with its foot in reality and a human drama with little bits of uh, humour smuggled in. Yeah, it was... Now, I hadn't read anything by Terry Pratchett when I first read this book. So I was, I mean, I think I knew that there was there was a, a Grim Reaper type mm. figure in the Discworld books, but I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't even read Good Omens. Uh, so that that comparison was completely lost on me. But then I'd, since then, I've like, I've read all the Discworld books. <laughs> and um, I when I got into them at the grand old age of 31, I think, <laughs> uh, what was I doing with my life? But um, yeah, so rereading this. I realised quite how much of a debt it owes to Mort, I would say, specifically the first mm. of Terry Pratchett's death books, but all of the death books and all of the Discworld books, because he's in them all, because everybody dies. Do you think uh, Marcus Suzak was a ter- Terry Pratchett fan I and don't know. deliberately paid tribute, or do you think it was more subconscious? I honestly don't know, and I would, I would love to find out, mm. because... I- that said, it's an incredibly different book because the thing about <laughs> yes. the thing about Discworld is it takes place in a fantasy world mm. that is a, a mirror to our own world. And it's with Discworld, it's almost like that Bojack Horseman thing where the premise is so absurd. You know, oh, here's a silly cartoon about a talking mm. horse. And then a few seasons later, you're weeping because you've just seen the, the best and most devastating portrayal of dementia that's ever been yeah. put on screen. And it's like you say, it's it, it, it's given stealthily through mm-hmm. what is objectively comedy and i think you know people who create things like that are very smart that we can get we can say things because they're almost cushioned in this oh it's not reality but 
what it makes you realize is true you know whereas i think this is another book i've realized every book apart from adrian mole every book we've done is fantastical in some way they all have either time travel space travel or ghosts or or supernatural yeah and this is probably the closest 1984 is a science fiction Uh, yeah i guess i mean yeah you could say it's science fiction well, yeah, there's nothing supernatural about it, but it's. It, I, th- I feel it has a fantastical element. Yeah, it does. Um, and this is probably the in in even compared to Adrian Mole, which is ostensibly set in the real world, but so silly. And I say that with you know so much love for it. But this is probably the closest we've come, and certainly will come this season. I think to discussing like a a serious grounded mm. book that's set in the real world and is dare i use the word mimetic i don't like that um uh but and yet it has this supernatural narrator mm. which completely and yet unlike Discworld, it is so rooted in in our world now i don't know i believe marcus zusak is australian um I, but i i assume he has european roots and will have family members who live through the war and i don't know if he's german or but um yeah, there's a little autobiography but ooh. the only detail it gives away is that he lives in sydney with his wife and two children i'm i'm sure i've read, i'm sure he his family are from somewhere in europe mm. so presumably like you mentioned in terms of us like you know our grandparents lived through the second world war and we were taught about it in history at high school so it's it's something that's always felt very close to us there's a dedication that says that elizabeth and helmut zusak um, ah, well, helmut is obviously very, very german so i wonder name, if they're yeah. grandparents or yeah it know. wouldn't surprise me there seems but to be it, some connection but it's interesting in terms of if you're going to write a book about humanity and you're going to write a book about deaths musings on humanity humanity and our frail mortality I wonder which came first, the decision to set it in the Second World War, which fed the inspiration to have it narrated by death, or was it what would death think about human beings? Mm. And you think, well, what would death think about war? In terms of what I was saying earlier, if you, if you could see with complete objectivity how brief and fragile life is, how you know how could anybody waste precious valuable time yeah. not creating beautiful things but creating bombs and and hatred and violence it would be so utterly baffling to you especially if you saw human beings in an abstract way and you know if you weren't human if you weren't even mortal would you really acknowledge things like you know um countries especially mm. countries that aren't even boundaries divided by mountain ranges or seas would you really see any meaningful difference between say france and germany or poland or would you see any any meaningful significance between races but you know what i mean you, you just like wouldn't would you ants in a matchbox exactly. that all seem to cooperate and then one day you open the matchbox yeah. and all the ants just seem to be attacking each other it would be so baffling and when you think about everything on that kind of granular level and you take a step away from the politics and borders that are quite entrenched in our minds it does really kind of hold up a, a lens to the whole thing and sort of question the pointlessness of mm. it when all this all this life is lost and all this tragedy yeah. to so many people and families are torn apart and people have to live crouched in cellars for a decade of their life and suffer so much. And one of the things I find interesting, or I'm finding interesting about rereading this at the moment, 
and um, I don't know how much we should touch on contemporary politics. Mm. Uh, well, I've but got some notes because it's kind of impossible to avoid, isn't it? I yeah, try. It's... I try to avoid talking about contemporary politics with this because the books are timeless and the themes are timeless. Like I remember we made a a, a, a deliberate decision before our 1984 episode not to talk about current political events because we do all the episode might date in a few and yeah. it's, quite, well, it's not funny but like a, a few year a few years a few weeks after we recorded that episode uh russia invaded ukraine yeah. and by the time the episode had come out what we said would have been almost irrelevant you know yes yeah absolutely but you you can't help thinking about the people that are in besieged cities in the ukraine mm. Being in a similar position to Hans, Rosa, Liesel, Absolutely. and Max in this book, so it, might and it worth... gives you a lot of uh, empathy with them. And uh, I think it's been quite an important time mm. to reread this and think about the situations with other people, not just in European mm. wars, but there are so many conflicts happening all over the world. And th- this should be a lesson mm. that we learnt from the Second World War, and yet it it makes you think that some people still haven't learnt that lesson. It makes me think of. Um... The Greenfields of France. Mm. Remember, you know, did they did they really believe that this war would end wars? Yeah. You know, the, what is it? The suffering, the pain. Oh, William McBride. It all happened again. Mm. Oh God. Um. And yes, yeah, so it might be worth mentioning that we're recording this in May 2022. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna. This episode's gonna go out in a few weeks. Um. And again, I think the the, the themes of this book are timeless. It's about mortality, and it's about war. And as long as there are people, it seems, unfortunately, there will be war and inevitably mm. death. And like you said, this is a period of history that we can touch. Obviously, we weren't alive, but we were raised by people who lived through it. Yeah. And we, we were taught by people whose parents lived through it, you know. Um, and there is, you know, with us being English, you get a version of events. Mm. Um and it's very, it is very black and white that there was, you know, we were the allies, we we won the war, <laughs> and we were the good guys, yeah. and and I think the the reality of the situation is much more complex than that. Um, and what shocked me, and I, I suppose I had quite a blinkered view of of, or at least my my before I read this book, and I was probably about how old were I then, twenty three or thereabouts. Mm. I guess my idea of Nazi Germany was that there were Nazi sympathisers. And there were people who fought against it and maybe were imprisoned mm. for fighting against it or who fled to come to, to England or, or Switzerland or wherever, people who didn't want to be a part of it. And what never really occurred to me until I read this book was how normal it would have been yeah. for so many people, especially a young child like Liesel. Mm. Uh, and there, there are scenes that, you know, they're, they're really shocking to read where they're going to like Hitler youth meetings oh, and yeah. things. And, and you grew up with with you know learning about hitler youth and and, and you know on, on the the olympics in germany pre-war and all that and 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 you it doesn't occur to you and maybe it was that you know that because i was so young when i read it that people just get on with their lives they yes. get up they go to work they do the laundry they they raise their children intolerable and, circumstances yeah and you know they they don't choose what their politicians do no. and yet they're sometimes put in impossible situations yeah and there's a there's a fantastic bit the chapter called the gates of thievery um when liesel says i think she says she hates hitler yeah mm. i hate the Fuhrer. Oh. i hate him and hans huberman that's her, her her adoptive father what did he do what did he say and um and he slaps her 
and says, don't ever say that. And she's horrified because you know, he, this man that she loves and has just slapped her. But and he, he never says, shows anything but kindliness up no. to that point. And of course, she realized that he's being kind. Yeah, he's but, worried about yeah. her. And he's, it's not because he's pro-Hitler at all. He says, you can say that in our house, he said, looking gravely at Liesel's cheek. But you never say it on the street, at school, at the BDM, never. He stood in front of her and lifted her by the triceps. He shook her. Do you hear me? And and objectively, you could say, well, he's being pro-Hitler. But Mm. he's just beyond politics. In that moment, he's just a father terrified for the well-being of his daughter. Because if they hear you saying that, you're in trouble and we're in trouble. And, and, And her father was a communist, so she's probably already on a watch list of some description, you know, but yeah, the, the normality of it shocked me. Um, but then in terms of what you were saying about modern day politics, it really, it chilled me rereading it. Now I read it earlier, this February, 2022. Um, and we've sort of post 2016, I've seen Britain become more nationalist. Mm. And some of the conversations that I had here, echo things i've seen and heard and i never if if you'd have asked me that when i first read this book in 2010 that would have been like a foreign country to me an alien zone i I couldn't have comprehended it and it's and it's you know how these things happen so stealthily these these shifts in in attitude sort of the the dual thing of sort of post-brexit rise of xenophobia and you know that when donald trump became president of america and and that the whole make america great again thing and then you get the character of so liesel is hans's adopted daughter but then you find out that he has a son Mm -hmm. that has never been mentioned and and he's a a full-on supporter of of the nazi party and you you expect him to be a kind of villain and he is in many respects but i think mostly you realize how young he is and there's an element he's been of he's been brainwashed. There's yeah. an element of pity for him, and you know, a short history of Hans Huberman versus his son. In the opinion of Hans Junior, his father was part of an old, decrepit Germany, one that allowed everyone else to take it for the proverbial ride, while its own people suffered. And when I read that, that was well, not dystopian because it was history, but that was that was fascism. That was life in a fascist state. Mm. And now I've heard people say things like that now yes. about Britain in terms of immigration and and worse than that people's attitude towards refugees people fleeing wars people with with lives and careers and families who suddenly one day have nothing and all they need is sanctuary and and charity and kindness and and there's a coldness to know no our country's got our own problems sort your own out first and and then you get uh the the nazi sympathizing son is yelling at his father you've never cared about this country it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. And I made a note. One sec. Because Hans, I don't think, is a particularly political character. In- inherently. He's no, no activist. He's but a... I think he's a moral character. My... Exactly. Mm. And there's a beautiful um, section later on when he kind of justifies what happens, which is um, at some point the Hooverman family end up harboring a jew mm, called max. max who is such a lovely character yeah. and it's kind of explained this way the thought process of hans huberman he was not well educated or political but if nothing else he was a man who appreciated fairness 
A Jew had once saved his life, and he couldn't forget that. He couldn't join a party that antagonised people in such a way. Also, much like Alex Steiner, some of his most loyal customers were Jewish. Like many of the Jews believed, he didn't think the hatred could last, and it was a conscious decision not to follow Hitler. On many levels, it was a disastrous one. Well, I love through his unconscious rebellion, he ends up subverting some yeah. of the Nazi ideals. Like, they won't let him join the party, or they constantly string it out. And so, on one of the times he goes to the party, they give him a copy of Mein Kampf. Oh, yeah. And then he ends up sending that copy of Mein Kampf to Max, so that he can read it and be inconspicuous whilst he travels across the country, because he'll look like a supporter. I know. And, and then... then that ends up being subverted itself, because Max does this beautiful thing. <sighs> where he paints the pages white uh, and then ends up repainting his own story of the pages of Mein Kampf, the standover man. Absolutely and, beautiful. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it, if you've not read this book, like just for that, you should read it. And uh, talking about Max's journey and his, his suffering. And it's so hard to read how somebody has been marginalised oh their whole yeah. life and treated like a subhuman. And we were talking about that on, on the way here, mm. actually, saying that the the tragedy of of the way that max is forced to live for the for the bulk of the the events of the novel um because we're saying ostensibly he's free because he's escaped mm. persecution and he's for now you know escaped the concentration camp and yet he's living in their basement covered by dust sheets and yeah. paintings so that it looks anonymous just like a heap of junk he is literally with the junk yeah and he's like you say he's he's being forced to live underground almost as if he is you know subhuman and we're saying how disgusting it is that despite the fact he hasn't been captured just because of where he is and when he is that hitler is still one in that basement hitler is still one and it's it's oh it's just incredible incredibly written um, and where it's uh when he starts coming upstairs at night and they start risking having him by the fireplace because he's freezing to death but it says in the morning he would return to the basement the voiceless human, the Jewish rat, back to his yeah. hole. It's so stark, and I cried it's when awful. I read that yeah. bit. And it's interesting, yeah, that the imagery of painting over Mein Kampf mm. is just absolutely gorgeous. And you can actually see, uh, in the book, you can see re- sections of the yeah. words from Mein Kampf that are faded out so and well by the done. paint, and you can see little bits of the letters sticking through, and this, this better, more beautiful mm. message, like turning something hideous into something really touching and heartfelt and you could say there's amazing. some there's something meta about that because this this is a, a fictional novel that's set during the second world war so this book wouldn't exist were it not for that mm. war and yet marcus Susak has taken those events those horrific events and made something beautiful mm. uh, i'm not saying that that justifies war and and holocaust and devastation but i think it's that duality at the core of this book that for all humanity's ugliness and evil and cruelty, like we are incredible, we are we are capable of incredible beauty. Um, but I, I like again in terms of that the sheer symbolism of painting over the, the words of hatred and creating something beautiful. There's we mentioned we were talking about Germany and specifically Berlin, but we're talking about the music uh, and and the, the gigs and there's people playing guitars in the street and another. Uh, aspect of Hans Huberman's character is that he is an accordionist and there's a wonderful story about how he became an accordionist which is which is bound up with his reasons for for taking in Max Um, and long story short when Hans fought in the first world war uh, the accordion 
inadvertently in a roundabout sort of way saved his life mm. uh and it, it kind of sets up maybe this is just my interpretation of it as a musician and as somebody who loves music but it's almost like music is the opposite of war and the mm. antidote to war um incidentally we're recording this in a very very beautiful location yeah. and we've we've had to do some soundproofing and i've i had to take down a clock that was ticking too loudly <laughs> but we've left the patio doors open deliberately because there was some beautiful bird song just when we started mm. and i couldn't quite bring myself to close the doors and i thought it would be if you can hear it i hope it's not too distracting because you thought it would be a gorgeous backdrop to the episode the bird song and it makes me think of you know the uh the recording well not actually a recording but the you know the when the guns ceased at the end of the first world war and that after that last shell there's a moment of silence then and then the birds begin to sing mm. And it's just something so beautiful about that. Again, it's almost like nature's answer to what you were saying about what happens after war, what happens after fascism, what mm. happens after totalitarianism. And it's like, in some ways, like nature will always find a way yeah. and beauty will always find a way. But will humanity? It reminds me of um, a recent interview that uh, Brian Maloko, Maloko? Brian Malko <laughs> from Placebo gave. Uh, he said, it's not the end of humanity. It's just the end of the world. <laughs> Well, it's certainly the end of this half, I think. Is it time for a tea break? I think it is. And we're back. Freshly armed with tea. And I feel like I have to take a moment to appreciate just having tea and breakfast yeah. with my best friend. And there's a, there's a beautiful observation uh, in the chapter Champagne and Accordions. And... Liesel vowed she would never drink champagne again for it would never taste as good as it did on that warm afternoon in July when she was sat out drinking cold champagne with with hands and and saying that and they lived through such horrible times with such scarcity that you know a treat that's hard to come by is savored whereas when you have free ready access to something you can become complacent about yeah, it and there's a great it... appreciation in there makes you realize what abundance we live in yeah and we're not having to exist off meager amounts of pea soup every single yeah. night and there's a wonderful observation about that so she's talking about the you know if she drank champagne again they would never be equal to the casual concentration on papa's face there wouldn't be a paintwork traded cigarette slouched on the player's lips um you know that story that's in in relation to the accordion even the world's greatest accordion wouldn't have a paintwork traded cigarette slouched between their lips but then later on in terms of that scarcity she says um if only she could be so oblivious again to feel such love without knowing it mistaking it for laughter and bread with only the scent of jam spread out on top of it it was the best time of her life oh. And it reminds me of how like our grandparents would kind of wax lyrical about rationing. Yeah. And uh, like my wife's nan used to say she liked vegetarian sausages. And I guess it's because you like Linda McCartney's were like mostly rusk or whatever. And she's like, oh, that, that's what sausages tasted like during the war. Oh. I guess because there wasn't any meat in them. <laughs> you know. But it's funny how and even not that I'm really comparing it because there is no comparison. But lockdown in 2020 uh, 
was kind of even though it was objectively hard and kind of stressful and uncertain during the time i look back on that period misty eyed now like, yes i do ah, i remember when no one was driving anywhere and we all stayed at home and baked our own bread <laughs> i mean i was still going to work and not baking bread but still i've, I've absorbed the romance of, of, of the period you know and I, I think it's it's hardship and adversity and any kind of victory over adversity is is so celebrated and so treasured that you know you don't know what you've got till it's gone, you know. They're bonding factors as well, adversity. If you face adversity collectively with a group of people, I think oh, it gives you a so stronger true. bond than yeah. just kind of sharing happy times with people. And maybe that's a sad thing to say, but even on a basic level, uh, you know, you think back to when you're kids, often if you're a teenager, the way you might make friends with somebody is by moaning about a teacher. Oh, and then yeah. you've got a kind of shared enemy and then it somehow becomes a, a bonding factor that you, mm. you moaned about this together and you've got your common adversity. And I think um, a lot of these people are brought together as a community uh, because of that adversity. And they're not everybody because there's no, the there's massive like, division. Frau Diller, the shopkeeper, oh, yeah. um, who is a, a Hitler purist and you have to hail Hitler and salute mm. when you go into her mm. shop. Otherwise uh, you know she'll report you. Yes. Yeah. But there is... There was a moment, just an observation just after the moment with the champagne that reminded me of something we touched upon in our Time Traveller's Wife episode, which was in that in that novel, Claire's observation, or rather her question, is it not better to have one moment yeah. of true happiness than a lifetime of just being okay? And you could almost ask that about about Liesl and the Hubermans, because you, you know such horror is coming, but then you get this gorgeous observation Bold and bright, a trilogy of happiness would continue for summer's duration and into autumn. It would then be brought abruptly to an end, for the brightness had shown suffering the way. Hard times were coming, like a parade. And that's chilling, isn't it? Brightness had shown suffering the way. That idea of like the balance of light and dark and is suffering inevitable, is, is catastrophe inevitable, you know. But um, anyway, I think it's time to stray into spoiler territory. Mm. So if you haven't read this book, go and read it. Are you done? Okay, brilliant. Because <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't really touched upon is the fact that the book is called The Book Thief. Mm. Why is it called The Book Thief, Mark? Well, quite simply, because uh, the main character, Liesl, uh, steals books and... I think there's something quite magical about that. And the word thief has connotations of uh, negativity to yeah. it, of uh, living a, a gritty life on the nether-nether. And yet stories of the way that she learns and communicates and worlds that she escapes into. And I think there's uh, something quite beautiful about the way this book talks about books mm. and the concept of storytelling and writing. Um even if it's writing in um, what might be seen as a primitive form, you know, the writing in this is uh, literally paintbrushes applied to whitewashed pages yeah. from another book that we've touched on earlier. But how important must have escapism been at that time? And yet the books that Liesl is reading, the very first book that she reads is the book that she picks up uh, at her brother's burial and it's called The Gravedigger's Handbook. And it's not exactly that. escapism, but no. she loves that book because it represents to her the times when she first uh, moves in with Hans and Rosa and has the nightmares and Hans comes to read to her each night. So what could actually be quite a dark topic actually represents comfort to her. But but more than that, you know, she, she steals the book 
a funeral, doesn't she? And and there's an observation about why that book was important to her because when she steals it, she can't even read. It's oh. just a thing that she has because it was the last time she saw her mother. Is that right? Or well, it's certainly the last time she saw her brother. Yeah, yeah. Or it's her last met because it, or is it on the train she last sees him? Well, I can't quite mm-hmm. remember, but um, it's basically that book is inexplicably in her head somehow a link to those people that she's lost, and and that that's quite it's incredibly sad and tragic, but that yeah. is beautiful in its own way about how, and that we we talked needlessly earlier about the different versions of this book we've got and which cover and it's you know. I can't, there won't be any books we do on this podcast where I don't have multiple versions of them, I don't think, because, <laughs> you know, books as well as the words they contain, as, as it, it sounds silly, but, you know, you open the cover of a book like you open a door mm. and it's like escaping into a world, but also like it, the power that a particular edition of a book can have and can, can hold over you because, oh, that's the edition I read when I was this age or when yeah. i was in this place and you know they are like gateways to the past or to people and they're truly magical there's also something about uh, i think preserving the books because there was such a suppression of literature yeah. during the nazi era and the second book that liesel steals mm. is it's not really stealing in the truest sense of the world to me she's rescuing the book because yeah. it's a book oh, burning of course, yeah in um, on himmel street well, you, and you, you raise an interesting she rescues yeah. the book from the, yeah. the embers uh, and then she talks about why she could see why it would have been a candidate for burning. Is yeah. it the one called The Whistler? And yes. it's about yeah. a, a Jew. Yeah. And it portrays them in a positive light. And yeah. that's why the Nazis yeah. want it burning. But it seems like it's reclaiming a lot of the literature that was suppressed in that area. And I think there's something quite powerful about a writer using a story to reclaim stories that were suppressed. And that's one of the things that I love about this book. And you raise a really interesting point with the, the idea that the word thief has negative connotations nobody wants to have something stolen and a thief is a is a bad thing and a negative thing but um as <clears throat> something that you often see you know there'll be posts on the internet that you'll see about how legal does not mean ethical or right <laughs> or wrong and there are sometimes you know there are lists given example examples of things that happened that were legal like the holocaust for example yeah. uh and then things that were illegal like women voting mm. or you know the, the the rights of of uh black citizens in america you know um abortion in some places exactly still. yeah exactly still and and it kind of inverts that or not so much inverts it it challenges that notion of of what is morality and how how blindly do you accept the prescribed morality of an authority and you can say well yes she steals that book from the bonfire so what was the greater crime burning the books which was legal or rescuing the book from the flames which was an act of mm. thievery you know i think it's it's really clever in, in that sense and um and again that, that idea of sort of good and evil and, and and black and white and right and wrong it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how as as english people growing up in england and learning you know the history of, of the second world war and but then being confronted with with this idea that you know there were so many people who were just ordinary families just trying to live through that time who were are when i say are i mean our nations quote unquote enemies mm. and um i mentioned that i finished this book in cologne or cologne and uh not Colne near, near burnley <laughs> i struggled to pronounce that without saying Colne. <laughs> um and what apart from 
the gorgeous cathedral. It is a cathedral, isn't it? Yeah, William? it is. Um, it took hundreds of years to build. It's an incredibly modern city. Yeah. I mean, you're looking around, you know, sort of like, it's very flat and there are very, lots of very modern shops and you realise that there's there's not much other than the cathedral. There aren't many old buildings there because we bombed them all. Yes. And, you know, you've read so much about the Blitz and the, the great British wartime spirit and, you know, real, real... Uh, first-hand accounts um of ordinary people i'll tell you a funny story yes a funny story but it's not really that funny it's about bombing but it could almost have occurred in the book thief but it was uh it was in the north of england my um not actually a relation of mine my my cousin's nan Mm. so we have the same (laughs) my paternal nan is also her nan but this was her her mum's mum uh phyllis she was called and she was uh in the in the the bomb shelter one night uh and they you know they weren't to leave but she was she was desperate for a pee uh and she didn't want to go in in the bucket in front of everyone so she ran out into the dead of night in in the blackout and ran down an alley and uh you know did her business ran back to the shelter went home the next morning and the next day you know, after they all clear, she's walking back and she's about to turn down the alley that she went the night before to have a wee, uh, but it's cordoned off uh, and there's there's a warden there. He says, oh, sorry, love, you can't come down here. Uh, and she said, oh, what's up? He said, unexploded bomb <laughs> in the dark and in her tiredness. She'd pissed on a German bomb and not noticed. And she frequently said, I nearly met me maker with me knickers oh. around my ankles. <laughs> <laughs> and how mad is that? Like, we can all uh, associate with that, you know, when you, you're caught short and you need to go and have a cheeky wee somewhere. But during a bombing raid, yeah. you know, and it's such an improbable thing. And, and the fact that people can look back and put a humorous slant on it because they were just ordinary people living ordinary lives. But we're so conditioned to accepting that that idea of like us as the goodies and you know and and, and fair fair play because we were fighting the nazis mm. who are there's no doubt objectively and demonstrably worse and actually thoroughly evil but the reality of war is that i i, you know, I could try and sum this up myself but i could only <laughs> how far are we into this episode we're nearly an hour into this episode and i haven't mentioned doctor who yet can i have a can i have a medal <laughs> but i have to mention if doctor it makes who it to an hour you get the reward in in the zygon inversion when peter capaldi's mm. doctor says no matter how right you feel when you fire that first shot you have no idea who's going to die mm. whose children will scream and burn and then you get this this street himmel street which means heaven full of wonderful people you've got you've got rudy and max and and liesel and hans and rosa and they all apart from liesel they all die they all die and again sorry back to doctor who i can't help it there's a wonderful 80s episode of doctor who set during the second world war where a priest is being um, preyed upon by vampires and they're trying to break his spirit and they and they know that he has no faith in God, mm. so his crucifix doesn't work on them. Uh, and he, but he holds it up nonetheless. And they say that doesn't work on us. You lost your faith the moment the bombs stopped falling, yeah. started falling. Sorry. And he says, "I'm not, I'm not afraid of German bombs." And they say, "No, not German bombs. British bombs yes. falling on German children." And he, he he crumbles, and the vampires kill him. And that's and reading this book 
I felt like that, you know, because we've 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 heard that story so many times about about the blackout and the blitz and the bombs, but it's always that the Germans were the villains, yeah. and then you read, you know, in the summer of 1942, the town of Mulking was preparing for the inevitable. We get shelters were more clearly marked, windows were in the process of being blackened for nights, and everyone knew where the closest basement or cellar was, and you think. And it might it might sound naive me saying this some you know to some listeners but I, you know I was very young when I first read this but even though I knew it intellectually on some level to have it brought home to you in 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 such uh, an oblique way you know that there were people just like us just like our grandparents mm. and our aunties and uncles they weren't Nazis they weren't soldiers they weren't politicians they were just people and they died because our government drop bombs on them when you're a kid and you hear about the second world war you just think of the germans mm. sort of quite naively as the baddies yeah, and because you don't and think hitler about, you know you he looks like about... darth vader you know it's easy to just not accept it not question it sorry but you don't think about hans huberman no. giving bread to marching jewish people on the way to oh, concentration way to camps out, and how yeah. there are people with these tiny acts of rebellion who disagree fundamentally with this regime but sort of cowed into not being able to rebel against it in any kind of obvious way because they know that their life will not be worth living and neither will the lives of their loved ones you don't think of these people that are living under that oppression and trying their best to live an everyday life and maybe try to bet their best to make a little bit of good and difference and it's books like this and the boy in the striped pajamas is another really good example of things that make you think of the nuance of the people that are put in these situations and how their minds end up there and how they end up sort of perhaps from an outsider point of view seeming complicit with these terrible acts when really they're nothing of the sort they're yeah. just ordinary people a little bit like those people in england you were talking about mm. since 2016 before that just tip the balance a little bit one way and they might seem like a perfectly ordinary person you could well, talk not... to buying a newspaper and yet they harbor these views that allow evil to thrive on on one hand you get these sort of seemingly sort of salt of the earth decent people who if you had a flat tire they'd pull over by the side of the road and help you if you needed some sugar they'd lend it to you you know in a very real sense but in the abstract those same people can see images of people in dinghies clutching their children mm. trying to cross the channel in the hope of of freedom from oppression or certain death in the just the, the despair for a better life and and the hope of mercy and all they can think to say is shoot them shoot throw them back in the sea and they're those same people that would in real life see a person in need and not think of of, of race or creed or nation mm. or class or politics do you are a fellow human being do you need help and they would give it yes. and yet there's that dichotomy what do you call it cognitive dissonance i don't know mm. and that's why to me, Hans Huberman is a real hero of a character. Yes. You know, he, he's not leading some noisy rebellion, but in his heart, he still believes in fairness. And again, the, you know, the racial doctrine, the politics, the everything aside, he knows that Hitler's idea for Germany is not one based on fairness, and he won't go along with that in his own way. And and there's a brilliant bit, I say brilliant, there's a touching bit later on where... Um, it's after the bombing and i think the last time she saw max he was on his way to dachau um and 
most of the characters are dead and Liesl doesn't know if Max has survived or not. And there's this absolutely brutal line where she says, um, I don't want to pray that Max is alive and safe or Alex Steiner because the world does not deserve them. Mm. And it's hard to read this book and, and not agree with that sentiment. You think there's just so much cruelty and, and brutality. Um, why, get, why go on? Why carry on? And then, but then you get death's observations. And I think to me, you touched on it earlier. And in many ways, it's a sort of central moment of the book which is why it's seeded earlier on in that kind of jumbled storytelling way that death will just tell you something that's going to happen out of the blue and it doesn't happen for another 400 pages. But <laughs> I guess he reckons time in a different way. But there's an absolutely heartbreaking scene in which during the bombing, one of the British pilots crashes. Yeah. Um, and it's just everything sort of falls apart. The war, the countries, the armies, the bombs, and what we have in that moment it's just a dying man and some children see him and there's no anger or violence or animosity, even though, you know, he's killing them, mm. he's, you know, destroying their neighborhood. But I think they both of them acknowledge that they're just cogs in a vast machine that they have no say in or part of. They're, they're both just people living through the, the times they're living through. And of course, the pilot, the British pilot doesn't speak German. The German children don't speak English. Mm. And uh, is it Rudy? I can't remember who it is. But all, all I can think is just to give him a teddy bear yeah. as he dies. And, and obviously death witnesses that. That amidst all the blood and carnage and horror and destruction, there is this tiny act of mercy and kindness. And, um, and you get... Carefully, he climbed to the dying man. He placed the smiling teddy bear cautiously onto the pilot's shoulder. The rip of its ear touched his throat. Sorry, the tip of its ear touched his throat. The dying man breathed it in. He spoke in English, he said, Thank you. His straight line cuts opened as he spoke, and a small drop of blood rolled crookedly down his throat. And then shortly after, you have death's observation. Above me, the sky eclipsed, just a last moment of darkness, and I swear I could see a black signature in the shape of a swastika. It loitered untidily above. Heil Hitler, I said, but I was well into the trees by then. Behind me, a teddy bear was resting on the shoulder of a corpse. <sighs> I mean, it's difficult to really comment on that other than just to let those words speak for themselves such an incredible example of beauty and horror and how how can those two extremes be contained within the same race the human race i mean it's just so affecting and it it might be stating the obvious to say that th this book leaves me with the feeling that war is bad it really does. It only serves to emphasize my own feeling that it, it's always just ultimately futile, no matter whose side you're fighting on. And there's a beautiful observation by death to that effect. A small but noteworthy note 
I've seen so many young men over the years who think they're running at other young men. They are not. They're running at me. And that's uh, words from death. And there's another beautiful observation a little bit later on in, in terms of that, you know, that idea that we're all just human and no matter what we're fighting for or who we're fighting for, we're fighting for death. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, our own or someone else's, we're just driving souls into the arms of death. And and that idea of, on the one hand, people who were like us, living in Britain at that time, wouldn't, no, not one of them, not a single one of them would have wanted Liesl or Rosa or Max especially to die. But still, they would have cheered when when news of of you know um i was gonna say resignation what's the word what's the word when you when you surrender so they would have cheered at the news of of germany's surrender of course they would who wouldn't we would if we were alive now and there was an end to war but who would choose that kind of devastation nobody not not the germans even you know even the nazis would not want the death of 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 what they consider to be their own no and again there's a a gorgeous moment right near the end of the book um in a chapter called the end of the world part one a small sad hope no one wanted to bomb himmel street no one would bomb a place named after heaven would they would they the bombs came down and soon the clouds would bake and the cold raindrops would turn to ash hot snowflakes would shower to the ground in short, Himmel Street was flattened. Houses were splashed from one side of the street to the other. A framed photo of a very serious-looking Führer was bashed and beaten on the shattered floor. Yet he smiled in that serious way of his. He knew something we didn't know, but I knew something he didn't know. All while people slept. Rudy Steiner slept. Mama and Papa slept. Frau Holzapfel, Frau Diller, Tommy Muller all sleeping, all dying. God. And I, as I mentioned to you earlier, when I reread this for this episode, somehow I had forgotten that Hans Huberman died oh. at the end. I don't know what, and I think I must have just blocked it out. I knew Rudy died because of the tragedy of that and the fact that it's kind of seeded earlier on and the fact that he's constantly asking Liesl for a kiss. Oh. And she wants to kiss him, but she says no. And then right at the end when he's dead, she kisses his his face, you know, it's, it's sort of plastered in brick dust. It's just awful. It's just unbearably their, awful. Their relationship is so innocent as oh, well. I know, and they grow into young adulthood yeah, together. And there is almost a sort of romance or a mm. love, even if it's a platonic love. I think they do love each other, yeah. definitely. In fact, I think she even says that right at the end. Oh. God. Oh, and that idea that because the street has been flattened, and you get Papa, the accordionist, and Himmel Street. One could not exist without the other, because for Liesl, both were home. Yes, that's what Hans Huberman was for Liesl Merminger. And that idea that her home is obliterated in, in more than one sense, it's its almost too much to bear. And, oh God, the line from death at the end of that chapter, um, he's talking about, you know, carrying people away. And of course he sees the book thief. It's lucky I was there. Then again... Who am I kidding? I'm most places at least once, and in 1943, 
I was just about everywhere. Mm. And th- there's a funny thing, you know, to go from horror to uh, talking about Family Guy. There's a brilliant observation in the, the Family Guy uh, Star Wars episode that has basically ruined most films where I think it's in the spoof of the Empire Strikes Back where they're flying into the asteroid field. Uh, and uh, and Peter Griffin or Han Solo says, uh, you know, they talk about the dangers of flying into the asteroid field. He says, relax, four of the five main characters are on board. I'm sure we're going to be fine. And there is that, you know, how much jeopardy can there be for your for your intrepid heroes in, 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 in any kind of novel? Um, but sometimes the flip side of that is like when you know somebody's going to survive, it becomes kind of improbable. Like, well, why, you know, why would this person survive and not such an... Whereas this is quite cleverly constructed in that this is a book narrated by death, as we've as we, we've remarked upon, and it's almost he comes to collect everybody's soul eventually, just in that in that opening passage, you know, I will carry you gently away. Um, and what we realise when we get to the end is that when he comes for Liesel's soul, he has a moment of pause and says, oh, I've seen you before. I know yeah. you. And because she's lived through such turbulent times, he's seen her three times and she's piqued his interest. Again, it's very much in that sort of Terry Pratchett's death way, a death who is intrigued by humans, mm. but can't understand them and their complexities. And he notices her and her stolen books and she becomes sort of not an ambassador for humanity, but in his mind, she represents what humanity is, you know, and yet at the same time, you get the impression that there are probably many other figures that Death's dropping in on. And there could be a whole series of books written by Death, and we're just seeing a snapshot of one particular one. Well, have you ever read any other books by Marcus Susak? No, with you. No. And I was thinking, oh, and I thought I found myself thinking exactly the same thing. He could do a whole <laughs> series of, you know, yes. not just wars, but, you know, you could write, um, you know, Times of Plague. I'm not yeah. necessarily thinking 2020, but you know, or, or the Titanic. I don't know. I mean, I'm, that, that, that's a little bit tacky, but you know. And then at this this version of the book I've got, there is an extract from his next book, another book by Marcus Susak called Bridge of Clay, and I believe that's also narrated by Death. And oh, I got right. quite excited, uh, and then I couldn't quite bring myself to read it. I think yeah. it, it was almost a fear. Um, I don't know, like how could it be as good? It's a bit like if apparently on the Kindle edition of The Time Traveller's Wife, there is an extract from the forthcoming sequel at oh, the right. end of The Other Husband. Oh. But it, but that's been available for years. <laughs> and even though I own two paperback copies of The Time Traveller's Wife, I, I, I've never bought the, the Kindle version. Mm. I don't really like reading books on Kindle. But, um, no, do, no, nor do but I. But that's not that's the reason I haven't downloaded <laughs> it. I, just, I can't quite go there. I'm too scared. Um, but what I, I find interesting... In terms of, you know, death, finally meeting Liesel. A last fact, I should tell you that the book thief died only yesterday. And as I was reading it, it occurred to me, I thought, oh, when is this now? It says, Liesel Merminger lived to a very old age, far away from Mulking and the demise of Himmel Street. She died in a suburb of Sydney, which is Uh. where the author lives. And I thought, oh, is that, you know, is there something semi-autobiographical there? And I worked it out that, if Liesel were alive in 2022, she would be 93. Oh. And if she lived to a very old age, that's not unfeasible. No. So, I was talking I, to a 95-year-old yesterday. So I should tell you that the book thief died yesterday, oh. which is at once heartbreaking, a thought, because we love that character so much. But at the same time, 
it's encouraging. It's kind of beautiful that she, against all the odds, she escaped that horror. I've used the word horror way too much in this episode, <laughs> but I've noticed I, I say beautiful all the time and uh, and fantastic and gorgeous a lot, but I think I've just said horror, death, blood, <laughs> devastation. We'll have to start keeping a tally. We can play uh, Chris's uh, superlative <laughs> bingo. <laughs> You'd never find a score sheet big enough for my superlatives. <laughs> but it ends with the most gorgeous. There we go. One of my one of my trademarks. Bingo. One of the most <laughs> gorgeous observations. And again, it's a last note from death. And it says, I am haunted by humans. Mm-hmm. What a thought. And of course, like we as humans, when we dare to consider our mortality, when we dare to consider that fact that we are going to die, that haunts us. We are haunted mm. by death, and death is haunted by humans. But I just find that incredible. Like he, he still, after all these ages, he can't understand us. And we don't understand ourselves. It's like we're back to Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> oh, God, what a book. It's, in some ways, it's impossible to, deconstruct because there's so much it's all it's in fact we'll get on to adaptations then so on your copy of the book there's a sticker with um the the, the film version of liesel saying now a major motion picture and that was i don't remember anything about it i know i went to see it and i didn't like it and um and i think i remember talking to my dad afterwards in that furious way that i have about <laughs> me because he told me oh watch the book thief and i was like what you did what um <clears throat> Because he hadn't read the book, didn't know there was a book, and and he said, "Well, I thought it was pretty good." <laughs> and I think, objectively, it is quite good. But what? And I don't really remember anything about it. But I remember coming away and saying, "Oh, that was a film about a German family harboring a Jew during the Second World War." And that, you know, what a great topic for a film. And there's so much to explore within that. But but the novel is that's one of the things that happens in the novel. But for me, it's about so much more and there's so much nuance and colour and depth. And it's like a cross-section diagram of humanity. It's like dissecting humanity and trying to understand it because of, like like I've said before, that that, that weird contradiction, the duality of of darkness and light and horror and beauty. I thought the film was (laughs) A-OK. I didn't think it was terrible. I thought they took an aspect of the book and they did it reasonably well and it wasn't like the time traveler's wife which i thought was a bit of an abomination mm. and it wasn't something like um extremely loud and incredibly close by jonathan saffron fur of which i thought the book was amazing and took me on such a journey and the film was just annoying and there was something <laughs> i found kind of offensive about the film that irked me i thought the book thief film was all right mm. um I I think it was a grain of sand in an hourglass, and the book is <laughs> the, the book is the hourglass. Oh, that, that's a I, great analogy. <laughs> but I didn't hate it. I, don't, I, no, I suppose I didn't hate it, but I don't want it to exist. I just want people to read the book, <laughs> and and you get moments of death's narration, but you can't when a book is told from the perspective of death. You can't put that on screen. You just it can't be done. It has to be something much less. And I didn't think it was cast very well. I think. Um, Oh, what's her name? Is it Emily Watson? Is that the actress's name? I've no idea. Uh, I, I didn't retain... 
enough oh, no, information. I, didn't. I, I, looked, I looked. I watched it, and I'll I, never watch it again. No, no, I looked. But it was on, all right. I looked on Wikipedia the other day, and I, I was really surprised that she was Rosa Huberman because she's just not how I imagined her, her at all. And I, co- <laughs> I couldn't tell you if she played her well or not because I don't remember. But I will tell you one thing in defense of the film, if you want to perceive it that way. I was, I was, I surprised myself on the reread when Liesl first goes to Himmel Street and she meets Hans Huberman for the first time and Jeffrey Rush walked into the room ah. and I couldn't believe it. So his performance obviously made such a lasting impression on me that he's kind of uh, supplanted the the whatever version of Hans I had in my head before I saw that film. Interesting. Yeah, I don't remember anything about the film in terms of the structure of it or, you know, I just remember thinking it wasn't very good and yet his performance as that character I thought was spot on. Hmm. And yeah, I, I imagine it's very rare that happens. There are certain roles like Gandalf will always be in McKellen. There's, there's, <laughs> that's just how it is. And Ian McKellen will always be Gandalf. Well, of course, yeah. capable. <laughs> Even if he's playing another role, he's still Gandalf. Well, on the subject of fantasy, we're not doing Lord of the Rings next month, but we are doing The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. So burn your toast murder your parents and send them to anatomy (laughs) and join us in July for the ocean at the end of the lane. We'll see you then.